Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on the show we go live to Cannes where I talk to Variety reporter Jessica Kiang about the new Martin Scorsese movie and a bit more besides. We review The Little Mermaid, Disney's reimagining of sorts of their own story from 1989. The one and only Martin Maloney, a.k.a. Eddie Durkin of the Hardy Books, chats about his favourite movie. Plus your chance to win copies of Alleluia, the Richard Eyre movie, which we spoke about a few weeks ago on this show on DVD. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. There was no show last week. I was in Singapore with Bobby Kerr. What a place. Uh, I was working, so, you know, it wasn't a junket. There was a lot of work to do with radio shows to produce. But uh, it's a fascinating place, if you've ever been. I know this isn't a travel show, but let me quickly just tell you, Singapore is the size of Louth and has a population of 5 million. The cleanest place I've, I've ever been. The streets are, are hoovered. There's doesn't seem to be any antisocial behaviour. It, it's the most, I think, this status accurate, the most CCTV camera place in the world. Uh, there are there are cameras everywhere, but it is incredibly safe. It's also incredibly hot, an average of 37 degrees. So it's a, that wall of heat. So fascinating place to spend a week in. Uh, the jet lag was a killer, I have to say. It's like 15 hours to get there. It's seven hours ahead. W- when we arrived, we'd essentially been up all day uh, it, it, it is tough going. I know this is, you know, the zenith of first world problems. Radio producer complains about his jet lag from Singapore. But uh, I just every evening about eight o'clock, I, I fall asleep. I was upstairs playing with my daughter a Tuesday night in a room with Sylvanians. Wonderful little toys, which many of which I brought home from Singapore. But anyway, and... Uh, I woke up to hear this girl running down the stairs going, Daddy, stop talking. So I'm sleep deprived, but I, I'm getting back there. Incidentally, I want to tell you something, which is funny and scary in equal measure, because as many listeners know, I'm a lifelong Evertonian, and let's not get into what's due to happen tomorrow, because I can't discuss that. It's a big game, let's just say. However, there was an equally big game on Saturday night, as it was, when I was returning from Singapore, which was Saturday afternoon, and I managed to get Wi-Fi on the plane, and I was listening to commentary of the Everton Wolves match. Now, it was very important we at least drew this match, and with 90 minutes gone, there was nine added minutes, and no goals from the Everton side. It was 1-0 to Wolves and we desperately needed a draw. And in the 99th minute, we got a goal. And somewhere over, I think it was the Gulf of Oman, I stood up on a crowded plane and went, yes! It was a scary couple of moments. Uh, So just be mindful of what you're listening to on public transport because not everyone else can hear it. And in the wrong situation, it could be catastrophic. Thankfully, everything was fine and our journey was not stopped by this mad Irish Evertonian. Anyway, enough of my travels. However, this week in TV, the thing I want to talk to you about, I watched on a plane. You're looking at around $12,000. 
$12,000. It's a dog. That's a lot. Just be back around four. How long's it gonna take you to pay this back? Not long, no. I'll do a GoFundMe or something. Yeah, and I'll take care of him. I'm sorry. GoFundMe's are great. Yes. Yeah, we did one to take my mum to a euthanasia hotel in Switzerland. It covered everything. Sorry to interrupt. Um, so you... You can meet me back here at four? Yeah. Okay, cool. And what was your name, by the way? Um, Ashley. Sorry to do this. What uh, are you doing? Don't film me. No, I'm not filming. It's just a photo. Actually, could I film you? You just say, I'm, my name is Ashley, and I was responsible. Well, no, I'm not filming. No. No, I don't. I trust you. It's fine. Yeah. 12,000. Do we have her details as well? No. Don't need them. Just me. Cool. Um, all right, four o'clock. Good. I'm sorry. I'm Flash, by the way. Should have said. She called you Gordon. Yeah, I mean, my name's Gordon, but everyone just calls me Flash. Flash Gordon. Flash. I don't know what that is. Flash Gordon? Yeah. He's the comic book hero, Flash. You know, Flash Gordon. So you guys can go. Now, that is a clip from the wrongly named Colin from Accounts. Now, this is a show which is written by a real life husband and wife team. Harriet Dyer uh, is an Australian actress, and Patrick Bramble is as well. They play Ashley and Gordon. And you hear them there in a vet figuring out how they're going to pay for this dog. So basically, they meet on a street when Gordon is driving and he sees Ashley and he is quite taken with her and he lets her cross the road and she flashes him her boob, if I may be permitted to use that term. And he bumps his car into a dog and then they have to take the dog to the vet and can't decide whether they're going to keep the dog or put him down. And what begins is one of the most delightful rom-coms on TV I have ever seen. Someone emailed into the show a couple of weeks ago saying I, sh- I should watch this. My, my apologies, I don't have your name to hand. And this show, it was on BBC a while ago, it's now on RT Player, and it's word of mouth is huge. I know David Tennant is watching it, Imelda Staunton. It is absolutely brilliant. I was talking to Pat Kenny about it during the week. It is brilliant because it is downright hilarious. It features pretty believable characters. I think this is a pretty finely observed rom-com, I have to say. Harriet Dyer's character is 29. Patrick Bramble's Gordon, Flash Gordon, as you heard there, is somewhere in his 40s. So there's a very interesting age gap of sorts. He's a microbrewery guy. He runs a microbrewery. He's been unlucky in love and... uh, lives alone, you find out later he has a unicycle, so, you know, that might explain him being single. And Ashley is a medical student on her way to becoming a doctor who's just broken up with someone and is maybe slightly unlucky in love as well and has a fraught relationship with her mother. And it is finely observed, hilarious and very honest. And as me-cutes go, you know, this scene where two possible lovers meet each other, That's one of the best I've ever seen. And the show is absolutely brilliant. Funny, warm, sincere, very honest. Uh, There's a very funny scene where Ashley goes to the bathroom in Gordon's house and there's no water and she has to get rid of something from the bathroom and then he ends up picking it off the street because he thinks it's from the dog. It's hilarious. It's not very crude. It sounds like that, but it isn't. It is just hilarious and it's really sweet and people are loving it. So Colin from Accounts is getting a huge thumbs up for me and it's all available to stream on the RTE player. Now, I just want to quickly mention the sad passing of Tina Turner. This is a movie show, not a music show, but as you know, her songs were used in all sorts of movies. They made a movie of her life. What's Love Got to Do With It? Starring Angela Bassett. And there was a brilliant documentary 
on Sky Arts or Sky, it's on Sky, put it into the box, you'll find it's simply called Tina. And it gives you a wonderful version, as told by her, of her life. This arc of her life that began with this talent and then had her this huge success with Ike. And we all know that was a pretty rotten thing. But what a lot of people don't know is the reinvention that happened in the early 80s when she came up with the song, which was actually a Bucks Fizz song, What's Love Got To Do With It, when she covered that and how her career went after that. It's a brilliant documentary. And what you see in that documentary is her live performances. And her live performances are the like of Prince and... Bruce Springsteen and Nick Cave and these people who become someone else when they perform. They're, they're no longer in front of an audience. They're, they're somewhere else. They're different people. And that's what a truly great performer is. James Brown, for instance, she had it by the bucket load. So Tina is a great documentary and obviously Tina Turner is sadly missed. And there was an outpouring for her because aside from her being wonderful, I, I think it says a lot about us. Tina Turner, you know, for people of our generation, my generation, your generation, has been this constant, has become this, you know, icon is an overused word. So it's it, it's hard to believe she's gone. If you want to get in touch, having watched the Tina documentary or indeed Colin from Accounts or having shouted on an aeroplane at 30,000 feet when Everton scored to draw a match against Wolves, please do get in touch. I am John underscore Fardy on Twitter or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. Now, I mentioned we have a competition this week, Alleluia, which is a movie that we featured about eight weeks ago, directed by the great Richard Eyre, who gave us things like Notes on a Scandal and Iris. It takes place in a geriatric ward in a small Yorkshire hospital, which is threatened with closure. The hospital decides to fight back by galvanising the local community and they invite a news crew in to film the preparations for a concert in honour of the hospital's most distinguished nurse. We have three copies to give away on DVD. If you would like to be in with a chance of winning, you can text us 53106 or you can email us screentime at newstalk.com. I guess the key word is Alleluia if you want to text that in. If you can't spell it, just spell hallelujah. Just say DVD. We'll know what you mean. I should say hallelujah is available on DVD from the 29th of May. Now we turn to the week's new release. Well, no, there's lots of new releases, but the biggest one, unquestionably, is the reimagining the new version of the 1989 uh, animated movie, The Little Mermaid, the new version. And it stars... Halle Bailey, the singer-songwriter, as well as actress, obviously. And there was some controversy about it, uh, completely wrong-headed controversy, because some spectre of the internet was suggesting that an African-American couldn't play the Little Mermaid because the character should be a redhead or some nonsense like that. Anyway, let's not even get into that. On a much brighter sense of things, Sue Murphy has seen The Little Mermaid and joins me now. Hi, Sue. Hi, how are you? Now, Sue, we've discussed this before, but you love kids' (laughs) movies, right? I love Disney movies, kids' movies, big fan. I think people can be overcritical about them. Yes. Just a bit like, let's... They're kids' films. Did you go to this with your own two children? I went with my three-year-old. With your three-year-old. Yeah, who is a big aerial... We brought the aerial doll. She dressed as a mermaid. It was a big thing. We went to a family premiere screening, which was the Disney one. It was just amazing. Like, your your objective in life is to get to a Disney screening. I know. Because they go all out. Cupcakes, balloons, everything. Kids have such a good time. Face painting. It was brilliant. 
two hours long. I was worried about. I I, I gave her an out a couple of times. I yeah. was like, "Do you want to?" And no, I want to stay. I really. And she's only three. And that's she's only impressive. Three. Yeah. So she really. I find two hours tough at times. I, well, <laughs> me too. Like, but it, I think what happened was because they have the addition of the new songs, mm. you're definitely getting through through it a lot easier. It's not yeah. like it's it's too much story. Yeah. So no, she really enjoyed it. Like, okay, great. Well, and that's Julia, of course, and, Julia. and welcome to the <laughs> News Talk family. Julia will be knocking in about fifteen years a for, review for her. <laughs> research cover. Tell me this. So this is very similar to the nineteen eighty nine movie. Yeah, they tried to be as as faithful as they can while updating it which mm-hmm. is what I liked I actually like the idea that they just take those films and update them I, I don't want them to mess with the old ones you know when you watch a remake or something why did you mess with the so story? they're not the reimagining is, this no it's just a live action version of the mm-hmm. of the cartoon now they have changed some lyrics they've changed a couple of ideas so you know in the original Little Mermaid she gives her voice to Ursula so she can get on land to meet the prince just remind people of the rough outline of the story yeah so if you haven't seen it it was based on a fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen. Fairy tale is a loose word when it comes to that because in the original one, she goes after the prince, he marries somebody else and she dies. So yeah. that's not... Well, you know, and not to go down a rabbit hole here, but you know yeah. a lot of fairy tales are very, very, very dark. Grim. Like and really grim. trying to supposedly convey, you know, adult themes to kids, but really frighten the life out of them, yeah, it seems like to me. Yeah, it's very you know? dark. The original's yeah. very dark. So that was brought to the cinema in 1989, I think. Yeah. I remember seeing it in the cinema. Actually, it was yeah. one of the first films I saw in the cinema. And it's Ariel, who is kind of... A, she's an adventurer. She likes going off and doing her own <laughs> thing. Her dad, Triton, is very suspicious of... Uh, Mortals. They killed his wife. He doesn't want his child going up on land. But she's obsessed with understanding people and how they walk and things they have and treasure troves. Uh, her treasure trove is filled with stuff from Earth. So she is. She just wants to be part of the world, which is the. And the she has a fish legs or a fish body. She right? is a mermaid. She's yeah. a, sorry. Yes, that's yeah. a better way of putting yeah. it. She's so a mermaid. But isn't yes? She, so she's a fish, like, yeah. essentially, which I thought was hilarious. Like everyone has a problem with the color of Halle Bailey's skin but you don't have an issue with the fact that this is a mermaid. <laughs> yeah, well, let's just clarify. Not everybody. Not every- Morons in the Morons. middle of America. Yes, let's clarify yeah. that. It's absolutely ridiculous. She was brilliant in it, by the way. Um, yeah, so that that's kind of the story. So she does, she happens across a shipwreck, meets a prince called Philip. Mm-hmm. Or, no, Eric. Sorry, Philip is Sleeping Beauty. Um, Eric <laughs> brings him ashore and he basically saves his life. But she falls in love with him. He's totally haunted by who is this person yeah. that brought me to shore that he he heard her voice he heard her singing yeah. but in order to go and meet him she has to go to Ursula and give Ursula her voice she's three days to get love's first kiss so she can be a human forever otherwise she goes back to the sea and she's Ursula's forever and the three days she spends on earth or dry land she gets legs she stops being a fish yes yeah. Yeah. Okay. so but what I actually liked about this one is they kind of reshaped that a little bit okay. so in the, in the old film it's that she takes her voice and she's able to be a human. Yeah. But they, in this film, said, you gave away your mermaid, uh, your, your mermaid mm. gifts. That's yeah. what they call it. So it's not just her voice. Okay. And they kind of reshaped it into being that it's not her just going to chase this mm. guy. She wants to go on an adventure on the land. She wants to be part of that world. She yeah. wants legs. She wants to feel the sun in her skin. Okay. So it, he's part of that. And yeah, great bonus. But she still wants to go and visit Earth. Okay. So. So I'm. I don't know. Your daughter's there. Things are good. You have the free popcorn and the <laughs> balloons. What did you make of this? I loved it. Okay. Yeah, I really did. I thought. I thought Halle Bailey was brilliant. I yeah. thought she was really engaging. She had a hard job. So Halle Bailey is. She's a singer songwriter. Yes. Um, and she's just. She just. The camera just loves her. She just. I uh, like. 
there's so many close-ups on her face when she's singing. She's just this amazing face that you just want to go, you will go with her during mm-hmm. the story. And I remember reading this, there's a great piece, if anyone can find it, um, called In Defense of Triton, where it talks about <laughs> how, like, it's totally ridiculous this 16-year-old wants to go up and land. Like, he's totally right. She shouldn't yeah. be going anywhere. And they, they actually work on the father-daughter dynamic a little okay. bit. He wants her to be like him. He wants her to stay in the sea. She wants to go somewhere else. And it actually speaks to a lot of, like, father-daughter relationships. And there's a love couple of moments at the end of the film between the two of them but it actually the acting is a lot better than I thought it was going to be okay. I mean, sometimes you go to these live action things you're just like it's fine I just want the dresses I want it to look fantastic but actually the acting is quite good and she has a voice like yeah. she really does justice to those songs the songs really, really sound good. gorgeous in it yeah. is there a lot of CGI in it? yes okay. yeah there is like but they I, I actually thought they did a pretty good job of it so Flounder is the fish yes um, I thought he it's kind of you have to suspend the idea of Flounder because Flounder is so yellow and bright mm-hmm. in, in the 1989 yeah. drawing animation so the the, the one here it's, it kind of looks a bit like a dead fish Okay. <laughs> so you have to kind of suspend that and just go with it but the the Sebastian is just brilliant who does Jacob Tremblay voice in this he's the kid from Room is he is he the fish or is he Sebastian? he's the fish yeah, yeah he's okay. Flounder Flounder okay. yeah and, and the songs of course by Lima and Miranda and yes. the, the Miranda, the previous guest on this show. Oh, he's amazing! Like mm. he really is, and Disney seemed to just own that <laughs> that yeah. whole thing. But one of his co-stars from Hamilton is the guy. It's David De Higgs, I think is his oh, okay. name. He's the guy who plays Sebastian, and he, and he is outright one of the best in the film. Like it's it's very very good. Like it's very enjoyable, and I think it's a good update of the film. I yeah. think people will enjoy it. Okay, and is there any you know the age we live in? Occasionally in these movies, there is a eye to the why of the world, and obviously they cast someone who was. Uh, African-American and there's been a debate about that but are there any motifs in it about looking towards a modern world you mentioned the fact that uh, she's not just hoping to find a man to become whole again she's looking for adventure are there other little tropes like that in it maybe there aren't so the the thing like what I liked about it is his daughter so the start of it is Triton calling back his daughters Hmm. um, and the same thing that happens every year and all of the daughters are different skin colour yeah. you know different shapes different kind of women and I, it, it's kind of a nod to strong independent women very much the nod to Ariel having a mind of her own yeah. but they soften Triton a little bit in this okay. as well and I think that speaks to father-daughter relationships yes. nowadays what it would have been yeah. you will do what I yeah. tell you he's very what have I done wrong here what mm. am I doing what do I need to do for her to help her be happy and it, sometimes that does come from a place of anger, but I think the understanding of where he's coming from is a little better than it is in the 1989 okay. film, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and defi- I just definitely felt like the idea of strength and her voice and race and all of those things that are just touch points at the moment are just dealt with really easily. Mm. And I had to say, like, Julia is at that age where she's asking about skin colour. She's kind of mm-hmm. going, why has that person got a different skin colour than mine? Mm-hmm. Not once, at any point, did she comment. Yeah. She asked me one question and that was, is that a real tale? So yeah. it's not an issue. Like anyone who's made this an issue, is it's just absolutely ridiculous. Here's to our colourblind future. So Julia loved it. What about you? What are you going to say stars-wise? For The Little Mermaid, which is on release this very Friday, which is the 26th of May. I'm going to go back and see it again. So, which is rare for me because wow. I have no time in my life. So yeah. I'd say four stars. I'd say Julia okay. would have probably given a five star. She loved it. We want couldn't understand why we couldn't go home and watch it straight away in Disney Plus. That was a tough one to <laughs> negotiate. Yes. It's a modern world, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Why can't but, we stream it? Yeah, I want to go home and watch it again. Yeah. So yeah, I'd say four. I'd say she would like it's perfect. And you know what? A lot of boys there. 
a yeah. lot more she boys. She pointed than her a, fingers at me there for some no, reason. No, no, no. As in a kind of a, I was really surprised. Yeah. I thought it was going to be all girls. And there were a lot of young boys there who were watching the film. And it wasn't like out of control. The boys had no interest. Yeah. Everyone was watching it. So if you can do that, you can just get it past the Disney princesses just for princesses, yeah. for just for girls. You've done, you've done your job. Well, you know? this is a very kind of forward-looking review you've given. I feel quite inspired by all this. The future's bright, folks. That is a whopping four stars for The Little Mermaid from News Talk's own Sue Murphy and indeed daughter Julia. Sue, thanks a million. Thank you. I want to be where the people are I want to see, want to see them dancing Walking around on those What do you call them? Oh, feet Flipping your fins, you don't get too far Legs are required for jumping, dancing Strolling along down a... What's that word again? Street Up where they walk Up where they run Up where they stay all day in the sun Wandering free Wish I could be part of that Halle Bailey singing in The Little Mermaid, which Sue Murphy was reviewing and she gave a whopping four stars to. And as I say, that is on general release from this Friday, the 26th of May. Up next, we go live to Cannes and hear all about the new Martin Scorsese film. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now, something I missed because of my travails, which I was telling you about earlier, was the fact that the new Martin Scorsese movie got its premiere in Cannes. The much-anticipated Killers of the Flower Moon was shown earlier in the week or late last week. I'm not entirely sure. But someone who is sure, who sat all through all three and a half hours of it, is Jessica Kiang, who's a film critic, and she's over in Cannes for variety and I'm delighted to say we go live to Cannes to talk to Jessica. Hi Jessica, how are you? Hi, just barely live. Yes, barely alive <laughs> in Cannes. Yes. Hi John, how's it going? That's Cannes for you. So listen, <laughs> we I might ask you a bit about what you've been up to and, and some of the highlights you've seen, but let's get to Killers of the Flower Moon, his first movie since The Irishman. For certain people, I think you and I are probably in the same space. The idea of a new Scorsese movie is just, you know, manna from heaven and the highlight of any cinema year. So what's going on in Killers of the Flower Moon? Right. Well, I mean, absolutely. As you say, this would have been um, uh, my most anticipated film, not just of Cannes, but of the year um, or indeed of last year when we when we first thought it might might appear. Um, so, you know, to say that a new Martin Scorsese film is anticipated is is basically, um, you know, it's a, a redundancy. It's obviously yes. going to be the most anticipated thing. Um, Martin Scorsese here being here in Cannes as well is just a huge deal. Um, he does feel very much like everybody's, you know, he's he's Papa Scorsese to most of us, <laughs> I think, um, and uh, he's sort of a, you know, a secular saint of of world cinema. So um, it was a huge event. Um, it was a very difficult thing to get into, actually, because um, because of where it was placed in the Cannes competition, in the in the Cannes lineup, I should say, it's not in competition. 
um, there were actually very few screenings. So it, it immediately oh. became the hottest ticket in town. It played on Saturday. Um, and also, you can generally say that many, uh, most of the big films will play the first weekend of Cannes, and it makes it a very sort of pressurized, um, uh, hothoused environment. Um, yeah. So, yeah, into all of that, then, you know, you, you actually are there finally and you're watching the film, this film that about which I have, you know, I have built up so much um, expectation. Um, and I have also read the book on which it's based. So it's oh, basically okay. the book, Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran, which is a terrific, really terrific read. It's a nonfiction novel, I suppose you could call it. It's a true crime um, uh, investigative piece, but it really reads with the, with the sort of um, page turnery um, feel of a thriller. Um, and so and when I was reading the book, I was thinking, to, I knew already that Scorsese was adapting it. And I was thinking, well, he's really the only person who could do a story of this scale and scope any justice. And the strange thing then for me was um, because Killers of the Flower Moon is very long. Um, it's three and a half hours long. Uh, for the first hour or so, I was genuinely um, on the back foot and very taken aback by how how disorganized I found it, how very unscorsese I found it. Um, I thought it was uh, it's kind of quite bizarrely edited at times. And for anybody who hasn't read the book, I think it might be really a blizzard of information um, that isn't given a particular shape. Um, okay, let me just interject there for a second. Can you give us a top line about what it's about? It's about the yeah. search for oil in 1920s Oklahoma with some Native American people is the is the stamp version of it. No, no, it's actually not about the search for oil. The, the oil has been found um uh, several decades before on this particular ah. part of in this particular part of the world. So, this is in Oklahoma and it's in a territory um that was uh, given to the Osage Nation, um mm. the Native American Osage people. Uh, and it was given to them several decades before. Um, when the story begins, it's the 1920s. And by that stage, oil has already been discovered on this land. I mean, there's an irony there, of course, because the land was actually given to them because it was believed to be infertile and kind of, uh, you know, a really crappy piece of land that they could um, put this Indian tribe onto, so relocate them. Um, so then when oil is discovered, uh, in, I think it was in the late 1870s that oil was discovered, on this land, suddenly the Osage nation, the Osage people themselves, because they negotiated the the treaties and the, the they're called the head rights, um, so basically the rights to the oil that was suddenly gushing from underneath their feet, they the Osage nation for a short period of time, um, and this came to a head in the 1920s, were actually the, the richest per capita social group of people in the entire world. There was suddenly enormous wealth, which, and also this, and obviously this, wealth going into the pockets of uh, Native Americans sort of upset, I mean, in fact, inverted the social order in many cases. They had white chauffeurs and white servants. Um, they drove, you know, very fancy motor cars and had very nice houses. Um, mm. So there is the story of Killers of the Flower Moon is actually the story of um, a series of murders that happened um, against the, the most powerful and wealthiest Osage people okay. um, during this time. And uh, the fact that they were um, basically being manipulated out of their fortunes by very unscrupulous, um, uh, mostly men. Um, and uh, yeah, so so it's actually the it's a, a murder mystery in a way because um, mm -hmm. these, there are entire families of Osage uh, people who are sort of decimated by this. And so the story of Killers of the Flower Moon specifically is the story of Molly Burkhart, who is one of these Osage women who marries a man called Ernest Burkhart, who in the film is played by Leonardo DiCaprio. 
Um, Ernest Burkhart is uh, the nephew of a local bigwig called William Hale, and William Hale is played by Robert De Niro. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is again for us with, with Scorsese. This is Scorsese reuniting with his two like main male muses. I yes, indeed. Them. Okay, so. That gives us a a good sense of what's going on in this. So, so back to the review. So the first hour is a bit of a blizzard. Now I'm hoping you're going to say the next two and a half hours, pick up the pace a bit, but, but you tell me. Yes. I mean, that's exactly what happened to me. I was very surprised by, um, and, and, you know, really uh, not particularly enjoying the first hour or so. Um, And then it really, it, it lifts up. It, It sort of takes off. To me, what ha- actually happens is the movie isn't so much a Martin Scorsese movie from the beginning. It's a movie that you watch it becoming a Martin Scorsese movie. Ah. So um, when he finds the heart of the story he wants to tell, which possibly somewhat controversially is not actually really the story that is uh, mainly told in the book, he shifts focus a lot away from the actual Osage themselves and onto the relationship between Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro. So it becomes a very recognizable film from Martin Scorsese because it is about a lot of his uh, many concerns. Scorsese himself has referred to this as his first ever Western, but I don't really find it much of a Western. Mm -hmm. I think it's, again, a gangster movie that happens to have some Native American characters in it. Um, So basically it is a story of the early the early uh, foundations, I suppose, almost of of American gangsterism, um, especially as espoused by the particularly villainous character played by Robert De Niro. Okay, so it turns into a Scorsese movie in essence. So without giving any kind of spoiler, but by the time you get to the three and a half hour mark, is your, you know, Martin Scorsese size-shaped hole satiated yes absolutely my my martin scorsese itch was entirely scratched okay in fact really the 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 final hour certainly of the film um it just becomes absolutely thrilling and it becomes Mm. absolutely classic scorsese to the point that it's almost sort of difficult to remember that you were slightly annoyed by it initially okay um so it really by the end of it i i I net out a a remarkably positive review of this film but it's just to sort of uh, flag up that you might you, you need a little patience and you need your wits about you for the first hour or so yeah and is De Niro you know I don't want to say is he classic De Niro in this does he give a pleasing performance I mean De Niro and DiCaprio both I they they are they're they're perfectly strong in the roles Uh, what's actually really interesting is that the best performance in it is given by Lily Gladstone who plays Mm -hmm. Molly Burkhart Ernest's wife Um, she is truly extraordinary and I have no doubt that they will be pushing her for best actress come uh, Oscar season Um, and it's it's also one of the things that then sort of contributes to the slight uh, unevenness of the film in general is that there's a whole middle section where we don't we we don't spend much time with Molly at all okay very specific reason and um, and that's always a shame because she really does she brings a gravity and she brings a kind of a grace to the film um every time she's on screen she's really wonderful in it okay so so they're already thinking oscars or that's certainly what you'd be opting for at this remove yes okay excellent so look i hate to be crude about it but what would you say stars wise for killers of the flower moon oh killers of the flower moon i think i mean i i'll net out out of five are we saying yes okay out of five i'd net out out of four That is excellent news as a Scorsese devotee, as a lot of listeners to this show are. That is wonderful news. So that is four stars for Killers of the Flower Moon from Jessica Yan, who is in Cannes. Tell me this, just off the top of your head, when are we going to see it, though? I presume it's a while off yet. 
Um, well, I think it's being it's being released. It's been given a full release by uh, Apple, who are okay. one of the sponsors of it. So I think it'll, it should be out in in the in the autumn. So when you say Apple, but presumably it's going to get a cinema release first, or is it going to stream straight? No, it's going to get a cinema release. They, they, I think they they were pretty clear about that. So even okay, though it yeah. is a streaming service that has uh, mostly uh, sponsored it, it is going to be uh, yeah. in theatres. Which is what he did with The Irishman. Uh, there was about a, a four-week window, I think it was. Now, uh, just as I have you, Jessica, you are there in Cannes. And I mean, in the next four minutes, it's probably a very hard thing to do. But could you give me a, a whistle-stop tour of any other highlights, things you've really enjoyed there? I don't mean the rosé wine now. I mean the, the movies. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, the rosé wine does help some of the movies a lot. Um, uh, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, in the competition, um, you know, and this is like the, the, the big show, basically, of world cinema. In the competition, there has been a, a, a massive standout for me, which is Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest. It's going to be, it's a very challenging, very formally chilly film. Um, it's literally set um, in a house that is adjacent to Auschwitz. Um, and uh, it's going to be very controversial, all of those things. But I think um, uh, considering the fact that I saw it last week and, you know, I have seen a lot of films in between, it is still the one where, you know, individual images and individual scenes um, are still lodged in my brain um, all this time later. Um, and it's also the one that has given us the most interesting and uh, ongoing um, source of debate and uh, uh, discussion um, ever since it played. So the zone of interest is definitely, I think, uh, and, it, it, and I, I do believe it is one of the front runners for the Palm d'Or here, which is the top prize. Yes. Um, I'd also say in competition, I mean, it's been a, it's been a really good year. Um, there's another film called Anatomy of a Fall, uh, which stars um, Sandra Hüller, who is also coincidentally in uh, the zone of interest. So oh. uh, Sandra Hüller's performance in Anatomy of a Fall, which is directed by a French director called Justine Trier, um, is so terrific. It's it's more centralized than it is in zone of interest, um, but it also certainly puts her in the in the in the hot seat. I would say for best actress here, it's a courtroom drama um, uh, about whether or not some uh, a, a particular death can be deemed an accidental death or a suicide or a murder. And it's really, really gripping and really beautifully done. And she's, she is fantastic in it. So that's Anatomy of a Fall. Um, there's a, a really gorgeous comedy. I'm talking about all of these very long films because a lot of these films have been very, very long. There's a lovely 82-minute um, ah. droll comedy from Aki Korosmaki called uh, um, Fallen Leaves, which I which felt like a tonic. It felt like having okay. my... My temples massaged in the middle of the festival. <laughs> um, so I would really recommend that one as well. And then outside okay. the competition, there's a fantastic, again, very long film, uh, three and a half hours or so, um, or three hours, 10 minutes, um, called The Delinquents, which is uh, yes. by an Argentinian director. And it's a terrific uh, existential heist movie, I suppose you could call it. Wow. If you see one existential heist movie this week in Cannes, make sure exactly. it's The Delinquents. Um, it, has also, it has a beautiful, I should say, it has a beautiful moral, which is, um, which I think will uh, resonate with a lot of people, which is essentially that um, it's, a, it's a, a very laid back and meandering manifesto for robbing your employers and never going back to work. <laughs> okay. What's not to love? So yeah. listen, then very finally, you know, all these movies are there. Uh, the Scorsese one is out of competition. Is that right? That's, That's what you right, said. Yes. So, okay. But for, you know, the uninitiated people looking in going, what, what's all this can stuff about? I mean, it does matter. 
in the sense that this will affect what you're watching in your multiplex or your local art house cinema in six months or a year's time, right? I mean, this isn't just a gang of film critics and studio execs having a week in the sun. I mean, this is probably the most important film festival of the year, right? That's absolutely true. It, it always is. Cannes has the, the pedigree and has the history. And uh, and I, I also would really urge people as well, not just to seek out, uh, you won't have to seek out, the, whatever wins the Palme d'Or will obviously get a release. That, that these bigger films that I'm talking about that are here, and obviously something like the, the a Martin Scorsese film will get a release. The Indiana Jones film, which also premiered here, will get a release. Those things we don't have to worry about too much. But to... There is, um, you know, the state of art house cinema, as I'm sure you discuss quite a lot on your show, is is pretty dire at the moment. So, and while the ecosystem of the film festival world is not perfect by any means, it's kind of the best thing we have. So I yeah. would really love to urge your listeners to even go beyond what's going to win um, in this, in, in you know, on Saturday night um, and, and look at some of the stuff that premieres in sidebars. Many of them are non-competitive. There are small films here, but it just makes an enormous amount of difference for them to be able to say they premiered in Cannes because this gives, it a, gives them a platform that they won't get otherwise. I fully support and salute your urging of people to do that. Uh, I'm fully behind that. Listen, I don't want to get into this, but but like in a word, because it's going to eat up my summer as it is. But did you see the Indiana Jones movie? I did not see the Indiana oh, okay. Jones movie. So you can't spoil it. Wonderful, yes. wonderful. <laughs> Reaction was mixed, good. Reaction was actually pretty tepid which is okay. um, a very bad sign for something like that especially yeah. often i mean we had top gun maverick premiering here last last year and it was there was a rapturous reception mm. for that so rightly so people are, yeah. are very primed to uh, to really like the big mainstream thing that plays here so if they don't um it's a bad sign Okay, okay. Let's park that for now. Jessica Kiang, who's been there all week in Cannes and continues to be there for Variety. And you can read her in all sorts of publications all over the world. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, John. Take care. Jessica Kiang there chatting to me about her life and times in Cannes and of course Martin Scorsese's new movie which we await with bated breath. I was nearly afraid to ask her about Indiana Jones. I kind of wish I hadn't. Anyway, let's move on. Up next, the hardy book himself, Martin Maloney on his favourite movie. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well-known about their favourite movie. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by the Hardy Book himself, actor and comedian Martin Maloney, a.k.a. Eddie Durkin, from the rightly adored Hardy Books. He was also the star uh, and co-creator of it. And he joins me all the way down the line from Sweden. Martin, hello. How are you keeping, John? <laughs> I'm very well. Thank you for the, the loud morning intro. We appreciate it. Listen, your favourite movie is actually three movies, uh, which I've allowed. Usually we don't, but considering what they are, we have. Will you tell us what they are and why? Firstly, let me just say thank you very much for the concession. And <laughs> yeah, I think you also understand yourself. Uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy by Peter Jackson is... I mean, I've, I've, I've basically... You know, if someone was to say to me, you're on a you're on a desert island and you're going to be stuck watching the one film over and over again, I think a trilogy, and that would be yeah, Lord of the Rings. Just because, first of all, it, it, it's, uh, it's got feelings of nostalgia from back when we were kids 
and we'd we'd watch it every every year it would come out we'd go to the cinema me and my sister and my my friends um many of which were were in the hardy books and it's just a, it's a great great film excellently directed and great cast and I think, you know, I remember when I saw the trailer for, I was about 16 and it was on movies, 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 which then had to change to movies, games, and videos. And I caught an episode <laughs> of that at like, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning, one Friday night, as I'd started my summer break. Where, uh, that was like, yeah, 1999. And I saw this and I, I used to stay up with my dad when I was a kid and we'd always watch like, you know, 48 hours with Nick Nolte or mm. uh, Red Sonia or, you know, fantasy or whatever was on TV, cop dramas, like The Gauntlet with Clint Eastwood and that kind of thing. So I always had an eye for films because um, my dad and myself would often stay up at night watching watching films when I was off school. So when I saw Lord of the Rings, the, this, the, the trailer for the first one, I was just like, whoa. You know, and then when I went to see it in the cinema at Castle Bear, <laughs> uh, in 2001 i was just like you know where where does the action end yeah you know so you have you have, i think it was also on big breakfast as well i think they had some of the cast members on um and it, there was the scene with the ring raves when they're in the woods before they leave the shire and you know that was you know these are always these pre- press junkets and and these bits of publicity that they do to to get the audience interested. And I tell you one thing, John, oh, I was awful interested. <laughs> Listen, had you, not that it matters, but had you read the books? Uh, I hadn't actually, though my brother-in-law told me about, you know, about the virtues of Lord of the Rings and I just didn't get around to reading it. That's that's quite all right. But I'll tell you because I had well, a slightly... I read the third one though. I read the third one after seeing the second one because I couldn't wait until... Couldn't wait to, to find out, so I read the third Lord of the Rings book. Yeah, to see what happened. No, because the reason why I mentioned that is that I had read them as a kid, and I had gone with my brother to see to see the first one, and I think we're, you and I are a similar age, and I turned to him about 40 minutes, and I said, this is unbelievable, because it, no one thought they could be turned into movies, and they were just they were just so brilliantly done so I, I i completely agree with you about how wonderful they are is there a favorite one in the trilogy i know they kind of come as a whole but yeah that, that's a good question i and i often i think they're they're, they're all good in different ways i think the, the first one obviously sets up the the characters leaving their their home world and going off on the adventure and um I think I think there's 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 more of a variation of enemies and and uh, pitfalls in the first one, whereas the second one is an epic pitched battle. Yeah, and you know, and obviously the fall of of Gandalf there in the mines of Moria against the Balrog, and then the the third one then is you know wrapping things up in an epic way. Um. Obviously, then they brought in Smeagol into the the second one as well. Mm, uh, yeah, we, we didn't really see him in the first one, and um, I don't know. I, I, I like them all in different ways, but I think I think the, f- the first one is probably the the most Im- the most impressive in terms of like the, they were introduced to the the Urukai, the Ring Raves, yeah, um, the you know, the Cave Troll, and all these kind of things. 
Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think for, for the first one starting off is is most exciting and new, whereas the the last one there is the well, fair play to you lads, you bet the boys. <laughs> yeah, and I mean also it it's an emotional, you know payoff at the end of it like i remember you know with the books or the movies there's there's a real kind of sense of sadness when it's all over after yeah. this nine ten hours i don't know how you felt about that oh, but yeah. there's there's kind of like a missing feeling when it's done Do you know I've, i often said i remember talking to pete peter cassidy who plays uh, french toast and i remember saying to him because he, he himself and two other friends of ours they went to they went into, or they went. I did the interrail thing when I was about nineteen, and I did that alone. And you know, I did that against against myself being afraid to to do so. And I think that kind of represents Lord of the Rings, where you had like Sam and Frodo and uh, the other lads going off against, you know, against their better judgment, but they yeah. did it anyway because every hero's journey needs a journey, you know, and a reason <laughs> to go. And and I, I I myself you know some some of my friends they were like oh yeah we'll get the interrail ticket oh oh I've got it tomorrow you know so I went off I bought I went down to use it in the keys in Dublin bought me interrail ticket and then I said have you got the ticket ah no sorry I was like brilliant I'm going alone so uh, Pete and, and my other two friends they went and did a round the world ticket so they'd flown from like they fl- flew to the states up to Canada. Well, Canada, the States, then off to um, New Zealand, Australia, Thailand, and India, whereas I just kind of did Europe. But, but there was three of them, and I just went by myself. But I said to them, before he came back, I said, when you come back, it's going to feel like the lads when they go back into the Shire. The end of the <laughs> third one, you just got to say, no one gives a shit where you've been. You know, you've basically <laughs> just come back from this epic voyage, and it feels like you've never been away. And, uh, and that kind of... When when I saw that the in the in the third movie that was that was something that we really did feel the sense of like you have no idea what we saved you from yeah and just got that the gardeners going you know just giving them the old side eye when they're coming in on the horses all <laughs> clad in armor and decor wow so you you've used this movie as a metaphor in some ways throughout your life so it it runs it runs deep with you let me ask you as you're on a film show uh i i've spoke to owen colgan on this show before so i i was one of the early adapters to the hardy books because i remember working uh, in a radio show in this station let's just call it the tom dunn show and we were mad to get you guys because <laughs> we were mad to get you guys on and uh so i was i i was a fan from the start but you made a movie of it. Was that a big leap uh, from suddenly doing this TV show that started as a web thing, then it was on RT, but to actually make a film, was was that a big deal for you at the time? Uh, well, the, the thing is, the reason we did the film was just because after the recession that hit, mm. RTE didn't have any money that year. Okay. You know? And also I think it, it cost them a considerable amount of money to um, to buy the the Euros. You know, so I think that that was that was the main reason. So Mike, my brother in law and also the director was like, All right, we'll go make a movie then. And uh <laughs> oh, So it was born out of necessity kind of. Yeah, well it was just that we had everything, you know, we thought, okay, well, if you don't have the money to do a film, uh, you know, and Mike very cleverly he was like, All right, we'll make a we'll make a, a, a box office number one 
um, on a less than micro budget. I mean, this was as feature films go. We did like we did this on a absolute, you know, skeleton budget. Yeah, uh, where we didn't have any, we didn't have any makeup, any wardrobe. Like literally, we were we were very disciplined not to throw away any clothes. And considering, like living with the the other lads in the back of the the caravan was like living with like six wild boars, you know, like. Um, <laughs> I went out with uh, with you know we took the caravan a week later uh, with some Swedish friends and, and my ex wife, and I remember thinking, wow, this is how it's done. It was like a proper hotel on wheels. But with as soon as we got into the van with the other lads, it was just bags and people sleeping with their jeans on. I remember like Mikey Salmon's feet rubbed by my head at one stage, and it, you know he had those kind of like those Galway early two thousand style slits up his. Uh, up the, the leg of the pants that were all draped in water. And I was like, this is oh. ridiculous. We didn't manage to lose, like, imagine if, if I had lost the Ireland jersey. That was it. We had one Ireland jersey. The continu- continuity would have been destroyed. Wow. Uh, there is one scene, actually, if you watch back, uh, my T-shirt changes halfway through. Go back in. Uh, and I remember talking to someone, I think it was when I was on Vikings, where I was talking to the, the makeup and the hair department, and there was a lady who said to me, "Like that's very unprofessional. No makeup, no wardrobe. That's shocking." And I'm like, "Well, we did all right, like, but yeah, there was no washing of the of the clothes, uh, yeah, uh, while we were away or anything. But it was it was great, crack. But uh, yeah, the, it was that was that was good fun. I'm thinking about getting together. Like we're trying to get another series going. I want to ask you, but one second then, sorry. So that guerrilla filmmaking, but given the shoestring, it was pretty successful, wasn't it? The movie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and, and much, much thanks um, to um, Ailish and Jane, who were the producer for Audio Drama for, for jumping in behind us there as well. They, they contributed to that. And obviously Universal Pictures as well. They, I think, they put quite a lot into the public or the, the publicity. And also there's a lot of things that happened during the film as well. There's a lot of very sad things that happened. Like my, uh, like one of the cast members, mother died very unfortunately he had to leave. Uh, when I came back then, my dog was then ran over and killed, which was just, you know, so there was like a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things happened during the making of it. That, that was kind of, again, felt like the boys at the end of Lord of the Rings when we came back from Europe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Listen, I cut across you then because I was going to ask you anyway. So yeah. four seasons, there's talk of a fifth one. Where is that at? Well, you see, at the moment, uh, it's in development. And, okay. you know, the is thing, it in development hell or just well, development? Well, it's, in, it's in just, just in terms of putting putting story arcs together and that kind of thing. Right. Because the thing is, I'm absolutely, I'm sick and tired of being asked. <laughs> not, not you, but just generally. <laughs> We're Series 5, man. We're Series I 5. Know, yeah. And I feel like... Either we do a fifth series, or um, I've got some contacts in the states, and I'm, I reckon we do a, a, a proper feature film in the states okay. with, a, with a good budget. So it's it's one or the other. That's that's my plan for this year. But again, it's up to the um, it's up to the the gods at RTE whether they can if they can spare the few bob to make it. And, it, and okay. it's, it's not like it's very expensive to make. You know, we're pretty resourceful guys. You certainly are. You it certainly would be nice are. to get like a full budget, you know, like if someone was yeah. kids, like, here you go, is like two million quid to make a, a series. Like in comparison to other TV shows, it's like, it's not a lot at all. 
If you no, can. absolutely. That's like the catering budget on, you know, the Sopranos oh. or whatever. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, well, listen, RT, listen to this show all the time. So fingers crossed. And then just very finally, Martin, I, I mentioned at the start, I'm talking to you uh, down the line to Sweden. What what has you there? You've been there a, a good while, haven't you? Yeah, I've been here like on and off 20 years. Uh, I've got this to kids. I'm, I'm uh, unfortunately, I'm divorced. So, um, yeah, basically the, the kids really kind of have me have me here you know have I, you and have the kids watched lord of the rings incidentally just to finish oh yeah yeah i, I uh, made, we watched it for the first time about three years ago and it's, it's one of those things where i think every year it's, i think they're as characters go you know it's uh they're they're good role models for for you know for kids because i think um you know they're facing insurmountable odds but yeah. they do it together and it's like i never thought i'd Die fighting beside a, an elf, and it's like, what about a friend? And I think that you know, I think that the the final speech from Aragorn as they're going up against the baddies in uh, Return of the King, uh, and also the the, at the the fields of Pelennor with with uh, King Theoden. I just think they're 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 very remarkably written, and it you know it, it's very encouraging and very metaphorical for any struggles yeah. we may have. To, to basically to do your best and and if you have you know good good friends with you who, who won't abandon you you can pretty much beat you know insurmountable odds together so I yeah. think it's a great thing for for people to watch and I understand why Tolkien was so it was just a, there was there were a good crew of of uh, of lads as well it was a good crew yeah. of friends. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a great way of putting it. Well, listen, Martin Maloney, all the way from Sweden, thank you very much. His favourite movie is the trilogy of The Lord of the Rings. We are hopeful that the Hardy books will rise again. Martin, thanks a million for chatting to me. Thank you for having me, John. It's been a pleasure, mate. The ring was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. It must be taken deep into Mordor and cast back into the fiery chasm from whence it came. One of you must do this. One does not simply walk into Mordor. Its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is evil there that does not sleep. And the great eye is ever watchful. It is a barren wasteland, riddled with fire and ash and dust. The very air you breathe is a poisonous fume. Not with 10,000 men could you do this. It is folly. A clip there from the unmistakable Lord of the Rings. Fellowship of the Ring, that clip was from. And you know, those movies are, you know, you can't convince anyone. Those films, you see them. And you love them, or you see them and you don't. It, it, it's as simple as that. There is no, nothing I could tell you that would encourage you to watch them. They are either the greatest thing since sliced bread or not your cup of tea. I think they are the most remarkable piece of sci-fi ever committed to screen and still cannot get over how well Peter Jackson put those adored books onto the screen. And it is one of the great achievements of 20, 21st century cinema. 
that is it for this week. My thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email us, screentime at newstalk.com or I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Friday. I will remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm. And if you may indulge me, I'm going to end the show by saying, come on Everton, have a good week.